Thank you for listening to the Troy Podcast, where we promote, educate, inspire, and entertain creators of all things related to fantasy and science fiction. Hi, this is Carson with Troy. I have with me Derek Pryor, also goes by Derek Ryder on some of his social media. Um, go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your books. Thank you. Um, well, I am Derek Pryor. I'm an independent writer. Um, I, I have flirted in the in the past with mainstream publishing um, for about five years. I write mostly fantasy novels. Um, probably my my best known novels um, are uh, part of a series called Annals of the Nameless Dwarf. I write full time. Um, I've been doing that now for mm, probably nine years. So I, I guess uh, I guess it's been reasonably successful. <laughs> I guess for most authors and most wannabe authors, writing full-time is the goal. How many books did you have out before you're like, okay, this is, I can do this full-time. It's supporting me now. Um, it would have been probably six. Yeah. Six books. It was, it was when I actually finished the, um, the first collection of the Nameless Dwarf books. They, uh, they began as a, well, the series began as a short story. Which uh-huh. I, expanded into uh, five novellas um, and they were very well received and so I, I bundled them together into a, a, a standalone novel uh, so you had one novel that was made up of five novellas and that just took off um, with some help from uh, Amazon they, they wrote to me out of the blue and offered to promote it as a I bet then it was called, a, I don't know if they still even had this, it was a, an Amazon daily deal. And uh-huh. uh, it just sold thousands overnight. Um, and then it was picked up by BookBub, which is one of the other, uh, the big promotion uh, sites. So it was on the strength of that. I, I thought it was possible to uh, give up the day job. Um, and then my wife actually encouraged me to, to do that. So she could see a lot of potential in what I was doing. So... She continued to work for a couple of years while I was writing. Um, and, and during that time, I ended up with an agent. And uh, that's when I started dabbling with uh, yeah, trying to get published by somebody other than myself. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then we got to the stage where the books were actually making more money than either of us were earning in our regular jobs. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. It's That's, not as wonderful as it's out, I and mean, it fluctuates. There are good months and bad, but it's enough for us to to get by on now. That's that's still fantastic. How have you been able to keep that up for nine years? That's that's a I'm sure that's a challenge for for most people. I, be, I even know like authors that have been traditionally published and thought, okay, I can quit my day job, and then they have to go back. <laughs> well, my experience of the traditional side wasn't wasn't great because if if I if all of my books were traditionally published, I wouldn't be able to do this. I wouldn't have enough money, mm-hmm. uh, which is bizarre because I you know I guess like a lot of people, I I had these unrealistic ideas that uh, if if a book was accepted by a publisher, I would have some huge advance and you know I'd buy a house with the money, and that wasn't my experience. Actually, it was actually pretty disappointing. And so at the moment, I'm, well, I, I actually write for other people as well. So that, that also helps that me helps. To, 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 to work as a, a full-time writer. Um, but no, I, I, I think my independent sales were much better than uh, any mainstream books I've had published. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, 
what is your daily writing habits? Like what's your, what's your daily life like? <laughs> At the moment it's pretty bad. I, I, um, I'm sitting here at this very desk um, probably from about 7.30 in the morning um, until usually maybe four or five in the afternoon, but some days I'll continue working late at night as well. Um, I, I try to take a lot of breaks, but at the moment it's a particularly bad, well, I guess it depends how you look at it, but it feels like a particularly bad patch because I'm finishing off uh, a ghostwriting commission and working on the eighth book of the Nameless Dwarf series, which I've committed to a release date of the 21st of June, so I, I can't slack off on that. And I've also, I, I have two other novels of my own that I, I'm working on long term. And if, if I don't write every day, they just won't get finished. So I'm working on four books at the same time right now. How challenging is that to keep balance on those four books? Um, it, it, not as bad as it used to be. I, I've kind of gotten into a, some, some I, I, I guess fairly productive habits I use a diary so I know which book I'm working on each day uh, I'm not writing on all four books every day at the moment uh, I'm working uh, pretty much every day on the ghostwriting and on the nameless dwarf the other two books get one or two days a week each mm -hmm. um, which actually serves as a break from from the other two projects I'm, I'm writing um, and it also helps me to uh, not get confused because <laughs> there are similarities in the world building and sometimes you know i might kind of start crossing over with terms and things so it's nice to separate them out in that way yeah. when you start a series how do you go about world building gosh um well with obviously with the name of store stuff the world building has, has been established for years so that's pretty easy to to immerse myself in and with, with those books i'm actually expanding the world um and so that uh, I guess frees me up to experiment a bit and just see where I can take this. With new books, um, I'm not sure I actually have uh, a method. Some, uh, sometimes I have literally just started with a, a scene that springs to mind and I start writing the scene and then develop the world building organically from that. Mm -hmm. and, and so usually I, I, I might have uh, like a, the first chapter written and then I take a yeah, step back and try to situate that with a, within a world, um, and start putting together some of the uh, the, the characteristics of the the uh, uh, the country that they're in, the, the race of the characters, and then situate that in a wider world. Um, other times, I might actually have an idea for a world. But quite often, there's there's a degree of um, parody in, in my books and, mm -hmm. and so there may be things that are happening in our world or, or places in our world that I want to explore uh, and so I'll do a fantasy version of them. So do you before you start a novel do you usually start with the character that you want to kind of write for or do you have a setting or like you said something pops in your mind with the world that you want to explore? Uh, usually I don't uh, start with the character usually a uh, if it's a new novel that I'm writing for myself, um, it will just come out of nowhere. I'll, I'll be reading something else, uh, usually nonfiction, and then this idea will just pop into my head and I have to write the scene down immediately. And that, that thankfully that happens fairly rarely these days because I have enough to write. <laughs> <laughs> 
But you know, I could be reading a, 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 I don't know, a, a biography of somebody, and then suddenly this this whole scene will will pop into my mind, and uh, the characters will start to emerge from that. If I'm uh, doing commission work, though, I'm usually told what I have to write. Um, I, uh, I have a fair uh, amount of leeway usually, but um, I'll be told who the main character is and uh, some aspect of the world uh, that uh, the author wants uh, to see. I was going to say that's actually more difficult, but actually it isn't. It's probably easier to have that direction and then I can just sit down and focus and start writing. So do you, do you outline what you want to write or do you just kind of go with it? Oh, uh, no, I, I, I'm actually in between a sort of, uh, uh, what is it, discovery writer and an outliner. Uh -huh. I, I fall in between those. Uh, I, it, originally, my first novel, I outlined uh, in great detail. Uh, and then the writing process was just so tedious. It was, <laughs> it was just checking off scene after scene. And, and the characters actually, as a, as a result of that, were very two-dimensional um, because the characters were, in a sense, uh, serving the plot. They, they, they weren't fully fleshed out. They were pretty much talking heads. Uh -huh. um, so I, I decided to abandon that. Um, I actually quite enjoyed the discovery writing approach, but I... I'm very, uh, I'm very big on structure, and so if if I were to write an entire novel by Discovery, uh, um, I would probably spend a year rewriting it and structuring it and imposing uh, a sense of purpose and make it look deliberate. <laughs> so, uh, so I've actually gone for a, a middle path where, uh, as I said, I, I sometimes get a, a whole scene just pop into my head, um, some sort of inspiration. I'll write the scene and then I will maybe do a very, very cursory outline. Um, it probably no more than you know, three or 400 words. Mm -hmm. uh, and then as I'm writing, I continue to add to the outline or alter the outline. Um, but typically I know where the book starts, how it's going to end. And I know a couple of the key obstacles that the, the main character is going to face. But then I like to, to just let it breathe and see where it goes with, within those boundaries. So you kind of have a skeleton of like events and different obstacles and yeah. flesh it out from and, there. Yeah, and it can always change. The, the ending never seems to change. I always seem to know what the ending's going to be. Um, but it, you know, theoretically, I, that could change as well. I, I, I certainly don't want to be restricted by an outline. Mm -hmm. You've written um, with the Annals of the Nameless Dwarf. Uh, is it nine books that you have out, or is the ninth uh, one coming uh, out in June? The, at the moment, book eight is coming out in June, but um, I've just started planning book nine, and there is a, a tentative book ten as well. What is the challenge of writing something like that? That's uh, so large. That it could get repetitive. Um, uh, and I personally could get quite bored with writing the point of view of the main character, if it was just about the main character, I guess. Um, but I, one, one thing that happened early on with the Name is Dwarf ser series, which is probably why I, one of the reasons that it was successful, uh, both with the readers and also successful in terms of keeping my interest, was that there, um, there were four point of view characters um, in the early novellas. Mm -hmm. And 
I think that was really what made the, the series because the point of departure for the series is, is fairly standard fare. It wasn't meant to be groundbreaking original fantasy. It was meant to be what these characters do in that setting and, and how they relate to each other. Uh, and so there was this uh, theme of loyalty and friendship, um, but a lot of self-doubt with, with the four characters. Uh, and the, the events of the story bring them together so that they're almost like a family unit by the end of it. Um, and I think the longevity of the series has been that I've been able to introduce other characters and the name is Dwarf himself. I mean, he has a lot of ups and downs, but uh, there's only so much you can have the kind of rise and fall of, 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 a, of a main character. Um, particularly in the, the, uh, the last book I finished, book seven, he actually, <laughs> he actually dies. Um, and now I'm writing book eight, which is uh, interesting. <laughs> well, I saw the, the title of that and I, I kind of yeah. got a chuckle because it was like, uh, Dead dwarves don't die, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Dead dwarves don't die. Well, this was it, it was again. I had I decided I was going to end the series with book seven because book seven, Last of the Exalted, um, was quite different to the other books in the the series. It it, it picked up about two hundred years after book six. It's actually quite a weighty, very serious novel. You know, it's uh, it's. I mean, I've, I've, two or three times I've actually taken a couple of years to write something that I'm proud of in a technical sense, whereas other stuff, you know, I can put it out there, um, maybe a, a, a one novel in six months. And, uh, you know, I always, my stuff is revised to death, but I was never with the name of store stuff trying to be literary, mm -hmm. or, you know, create a masterpiece. Whereas, I think Last of the Exalted, um, because it was meant to be the last book, I really put a lot more work into that. And to, I think it was two years it took from beginning to completion. And it, it, um, it went through uh, several different editors uh, uh, and an agent and really pulled everything together for it. But which is a shame, really, because um, it's I think it probably is one of my better books, but it's something we couldn't really pitch because it was a pre-established series. Mm -hmm. and although, you know, I, I felt maybe we could have pitched it because I've written it 200 years after the series as a standalone, in a sense. It, yeah, my agents, uh, my viewers, that they won't want it. Publishers won't want it because it's a pre-established character with a yeah, pre-existing series. And so I, I ended up publishing it myself and uh, it's done remarkably well. But yeah, that's that's a very different kind of book to the, to the rest of the series. Yeah. It's something I can read and go, oh, this, yeah, did I write that? You know, <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> huh. That's wonderful when um, something like that happens yeah. to you. Yeah, yeah. But it, yeah, as I say, he dies, the main character dies at the end of that. and. Um, I wasn't going to write anything else in that series, but again, I was sitting there reading something completely unrelated, and suddenly this whole story just jumped into mind. And uh, I have a, I have a neo too. I, 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 see, I tend to uh, jot down story ideas on this because yeah, it's distraction free, and so I just jotted down a an opening scene on that and realised that yeah, I did have another story. And it really uh, 
gave me an opportunity to push for world building. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been hinting at what's behind uh, the religions and the magic system in the Nameless Dwarf world for some time. And I don't think, uh, you know, I think readers found it interesting, but they couldn't quite see where it was going. Well, with the new book, they'll probably start to understand, but it's pretty unified. Um, uh, whereas in, in previous books, um, what, what I tend to do is reveal bits of the uh, of the world building, the magic system particularly, and the religions through whoever is the point of view character for a scene. But of course, the point of view character only knows what they know. Right. Um, and quite often they don't know as much as they think they do. <laughs> uh, whereas in this book, there's a real opportunity to start peeling away the layers and seeing what this crazy world is all about. And it, uh-huh. it is pretty bizarre. <laughs> is it? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. It involves mushrooms. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's all I'm saying. <laughs> Well, being a self-published author, you're involved in everything. You know, you have to not only write, but you have to edit it and find a cover artist and, you know, market the book. How do you go about those, those things? Like, let's, let's start with editing. Like how, how much of a challenge was it to find a good editor when you were starting out? Oh gosh. Um, Well, my first editor was um, actually a friend from my university days, which is like 30 years ago. (laughs) Um, And uh, so I really, I just asked him as, as a favor to, to, to look at the book and he gave me some, uh, some input. Um, uh, and then I kind of self-edited. At the end of that, I wasn't happy with what I had achieved. And so I, um, I asked around and uh, there was, a, a, there's a, a literary agent um, from the UK, uh, John Gerald, who's uh, very big in the fantasy world. So I approached him and uh, he took on my manuscript and uh, spent about six weeks editing it and sent it back and basically told me it was a complete load of rubbish. Oh, man. <laughs> in a, in a, no, he was very polite about it. Um, but um, And it was useful advice. And, um, you know, back then, this was going back I don't know when it was maybe 2007, 2008. Um, yeah, I really didn't, I hadn't really given too much uh, thought to things like point of view and structure. And so it was actually quite useful advice. So, and so what I did is rather than edit it again and revise it, I completely rewrote it from scratch, which took yeah, the best part of probably 18 months. Um, but the books were massively improved as a result of that but I still wasn't happy because then I realized I didn't actually um I wasn't particularly invested in the characters and if I wasn't then the reader wouldn't mm-hmm. and so I just took all of that new knowledge and uh, uh that's when I started working on the Nameless Dwarf books and on the uh, I have another series called uh, Sorcerer's Isle which is another one that I'm, I'm pretty pleased with in terms of structure so that was my first foray into editing and then after that I um I did a lot of research into self-editing and uh, started experimenting with that and then I was getting uh, requests from writers uh, some quite well-known writers to um, edit their books 
And because I, I was fairly new to uh, the whole editing thing, I was pretty cheap, I guess. <laughs> and I ended up, at one stage, I, I was editing seven books at the same time, which was not wow. Um, kind of, I drank a lot of wine <laughs> just to get it done. <laughs> um, but well, the, that, yeah. that almost makes it to where you don't want to read fantasy anymore. Oh, well, it's weird. I, I you know, so I ended up having setting up a business editing and. Um, it was really successful. I, I forget how many books I edited during, there's about a, probably about a seven year period. I have, still have my website up. There's probably about close to a hundred books I edited. Oh, nice. Um, and it was very good. But then I found that I was editing so much that it was very hard to write uh, because it's only so, so long you can sit in front of a computer. Um, so, the first thing I did was drive all my prices up, hoping it would reduce my, uh, <laughs> my number of commissions, but it didn't. Um, oh, it wow. actually made me more popular. So eventually I just wound the business down and uh, I currently only edit for one writer uh, because we have a long-term relationship. And uh, mm -hmm. so, yeah, whenever he sends me something, I'll drop what I'm doing and edit it. Um, other than that, I'd, I've been close to commissions for probably four years now. I bet that was a hard thing to do to turn off your editorial brain when you're writing. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that was another reason I got the Neo, actually, because uh, you it's very hard to edit on a Neo. You can only go forward. You can't really go back. And uh, so uh, you, you, you can't write and edit at the same time. Forces so you to move on. Yeah. So that's if, if ever <clears throat> I get writer's block, I'll just pull that out and write on that for an hour. and then upload it to my Mac and yeah. Um, with recent books, uh, because like a, a lot of stuff, like uh, the, um, the the books I'm really confident with, uh, like the Name of Stool stuff, I now edit purely by myself. I don't send it to anywhere. I send it to a proofreader, sorry. That's um, right at the end of the process, but I, I do all the editing myself. Um, but with, um, Codex of Her Scars and Last of Exalted, I, um, I used a um, very experienced editor uh, called Betsy Mitchell, mm -hmm. um, who used to work for, I can't remember which publisher now, but I think it was Del Rey. Um, so it was good to just get some fresh input for those books. Um, and probably I would do something like that in the future with new projects, but name just all stuff, I'll, I'll pretty much edit myself now. Um, you also have the Shader series. Is that yeah. what it's called? Um, yes. What's that about? Uh, well, Shader's interesting. Shader was the actually the first novel I completed was called The Resurrection of Deacon Shader, and it was a it was a bit of a what did it what did it, what is it it's a sort of cross genre uh, book. It, it's set in a, a post apocalyptic future on Earth, but uh, technology has been uh, outlawed by um, the church who after a, a period where the, 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 the world was run by uh, a, a character known as the technocrat who's a kind of like Bill Gates type figure I guess <laughs> and uh, yeah, everything was um, you know computers everywhere and everything was mechanized uh, and eventually there was a, an uprising uh, which started um, in this uh, very Aboriginal culture, uh, and they used magic to bring down the, this technocracy, as I call it. 
Um, and then the church kind of comes in and fills the void and decide that it's probably not good for people to continue down the, the, the path of technology, but they retain all of the knowledge of the technology. And so if at, at any time, if a, a rival nation uh, starts uh, challenging the church too much, they can wheel out some technology to give them just enough of an advantage to win any conflicts. Oh. And so that's the kind of background to the Shader world. And then Shader is, um, is a knight. He's a, a bit of a knight Templar figure. So he's a religious knight, um, but he's not very good at it. Um, he's... Uh, he, you know, he tends to be rather better at killing than praying. And so <laughs> after a particularly uh, grueling battle against uh, these undead creatures, which I, you know, that's another part of the world building that um, carries on throughout most of my books. Um, there's a country called Verusia, which is uh, ruled by this uh, uh, rather unpleasant character who used to be a priest, um, a few thousand years ago, he used to be a, a saint almost, um, has now become a, an undead lich. And uh, he's kind of always causing problems throughout my fantasy books. Um, and Shader has, is involved in this huge battle against this lich lord's armies and then decides enough's enough and he goes off to a monastery for a quiet life. And uh, that's where the Shader books start. But of course, he doesn't have a quiet life. and. Uh, um, actually finds out that he's been, in a sense, programmed since uh, birth by a rather dubious character who's a, who's a philosopher, but he's been manipulating Shader his entire life uh, to use him as a weapon in a, a, quite a, a metaphysical war that this uh, philosopher has been, been having with uh, one of the other nefarious characters. Um, so that's kind of how it started. Um, but actually, the Resurrection of Deacon Shader was the book that John Gerald rubbished. Um, and the reason he, one of the reasons he didn't really care for it, apart from my kind of very amateurish writing at the time, was that he didn't like the real world references, particularly real world religion. Uh -huh. Um, and that's so, something I did when I completely rewrote it. I just decided to abandon the real world and just completely create its own world um, and, and its own religion. And those aspects from Shader actually carried over into the Nameless Dwarf books. Oh, really? Um, and so Shader, really, for me, is a, it's, it's kind of a, a, a forerunner of the Nameless Dwarf series. Um, in some ways, it's a prototype um, because the the main events of the Shader trilogy, I, mean, I did go on to write a fourth book, but it, initially it was a trilogy. Those events are now retold in Nameless Dwarf book two. And then the events of the fourth Shader book are uh, Nameless Dwarf book three. So I, with the Nameless Dwarf versions, I told the same story from a different point of view, but then expanded upon them. Uh, to the extent that they don't really match up with the original Shader books now. So I, I have kind of moved on from Shader. I've abandoned it. It's, uh, it's uh, an archaeological relic now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this is interesting because for new writers, new authors who want to 
you know, they have this idea and they want to hold on to it. And they think that's going to be the one that's going to make the money or make them famous or whatever they want. I think writers in general, like wannabe writers have this romanticized idea of what writing really is. But with you, Shader, it sounds like the, the, the nameless dwarf is the one that really got you out of your job and got you to where you can write full time. Yeah, and, and it, it wasn't planned at all. Um, literally, I, I'd written um, the Shader books and I had given The Nameless Dwarf a cameo role in one of the Shader books. I think it was book three, um, purely because I thought it would be fun, you know, at the time. The Nameless Dwarf was a character I had invented decades ago when I was uh, into role playing games. And I just thought, I'll just insert him in there just to, you know, for myself, really. Uh, and then I started getting emails from people who read the Shader books and said, look, we really like this stuff, but Shader, you know, we don't like Shader. He's quite a boring guy, but that name of his talk was, you know, pretty cool. <laughs> and so I, um, I was um, on holiday in uh, Chicago and uh, I, I remember sitting in somebody's kitchen and with a laptop and I just thought, well, I'm going to write a a short story about the nameless dwarf for a for a magazine and i i did that i pretty much wrote the short story in, in two days and spent a, a few weeks editing it and it was um it was published in uh something called pulp empire um, mm-hmm. and uh again got some good feedback from that so i decided to expand that into a novella and i released the novella and it, it was quite bizarre how this happened a guy there's a reviewer called, uh, his name was Ray Nicholson, reviewed the Shader books and really liked them and gave them this glowing review. And then he just discovered this Nameless Dwarf short story or the novella. And unbeknown to me, he reviewed that as well. And I found out about it some time after. And his, he, his review of the Nameless Dwarf book was, this is even better than Shader. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I spent years working on Shader. Yeah, this you know, masterpiece I thought it was going to be. <laughs> and then this short story that I churned out in a few days and then expanded into a novella, this guy was saying was better. And so that inspired me to write another novella. And then by the time the second novella was out, there was kind of this fan base had developed and people were writing to me and saying how much they enjoyed the story. And so I, I actually found myself writing for this core group of people Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, trying to put things in to make them laugh and to make them cry or whatever. Um, and so that that, that it, the first series, the, the initial five novellas, was very much targeted to a, a group of people who I had met through their reviews. It was very bizarre. And then, as I said earlier, that was the... Um, uh, I put those novellas together into what was called The Complete Chronicles of the Nameless Dwarf. And that's when Amazon picked it up and it just took off. It was just crazy. So uh, it was an accident, basically. <laughs> well, you know, people say that, you know, you got to be lucky or you got it's an accident, but yeah. you had to put in the work for that to happen. Yeah, well, I learned a lot from that because with, with the Shader books, I had planned, I mean, the first one, the, the, the first version of Shader was completely outlined and that was probably why it didn't work. But then I had you know, worked really hard on the rewrites and I was, you know, yeah, I was trying to craft something special. 
And I, I guess actually with, with Shaden, my, um, I, I, one of my main influences for the writing style was Stephen Donaldson, the Chronicles of uh, Thomas Covenant and mm -hmm. that stuff, um, who, who's kind of pretty highbrow fantasy writer, <laughs> I think. And uh, it just, you know, it, I, I quite like the Shaden stuff still, but it just doesn't have that... Um, whatever it is, that X factor, but I think the Nameless Dwarf books have. And I think it's because I, I was pretty much free to explore my own writing style with the Nameless Dwarf and uh, let the characters just be and let them be funny, let them be tragic, let them be nasty. Whereas Shader, um, if, if there is a valid criticism of the character of Shader himself, it's that he's, uh, He's either too perfect or too whiny, you know. <laughs> he, but he doesn't. You don't really see him. He doesn't really fall in love. He doesn't really get angry. He doesn't make big mistakes. He's just kind of discontented, maybe, but um, fairly two-dimensional. I would mm -hmm. say, yeah. Well, I think emotion drives a story a lot, and if a character doesn't show emotion, it's kind of tough to relate. Yeah. Well, that, that's the key. I mean, there's a, a quote I heard years ago, um, but emotion is the key to the door. Um, but without the emotional hook, uh, people are not going to continue turning the pages. And it took me uh, some years to learn that for my, myself. It's all very well hearing that, but you have to discover that. And, you know, if, if you're reading back a scene that perhaps you wrote, two weeks ago and you get an emotional reaction yourself that's a good indication that it's probably going to affect somebody else mm -hmm. uh, and that might sound bizarre particularly to non-writers that uh, if you write something yourself it, it, how, how can it emotionally impact you but with with, with me I, I have such an appalling memory <laughs> but if I if I write something today I probably halfway through tomorrow I can't remember exactly what I've written and so when I read it back it's kind of oh yeah that's not too bad and oh, that, that, that. Um, and recently I, I because I'm writing uh, the second book in the uh, Sorcerer's Isle series I've had to go back and reread book one which I haven't looked at for probably three years um, and I, I really can't remember any of it, but uh, I'm thinking, well, that's that's interesting. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, that's that's pretty good. You can enjoy reading your own stuff. Yeah. So it's about the only thing my poor uh, my appalling memory is good for. So we've we've talked about editing. What about your cover art? How'd you go about finding the oh, artist for that? Well, uh, originally with uh, the, the first cover art was for the resurrection of Deacon Shader. I went on to DeviantArt and just searched for people and, uh, until I found somebody whose artwork I liked. Uh, and then I, I, I shot an email to the artist, uh, hoping that I could afford them. Um, and I, I've been quite lucky with my um, artists because I've tended to find them at the start of their careers. And, and so I got fairly good price on, on my um, original Deacon Shader art and subsequently that that particular artist his prices have gone up and up and up and I probably couldn't afford to use him now he's he's very well 
uh, known. He does a lot of, um, the, I, what is it called? The Magic the Gathering, the, the fantasy card game. And uh-huh. like that's that. that's what his head is, is Magic the Gathering. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, well, you may know it's Mike Nash. Is okay. Artist. Yeah. So he's a, a yeah, fantastic artist. And I've, I've used his work on four of my covers. Um, I was just looking around to see if I had one I could just show you, but I don't think, no, I don't have one nearby. Uh, but he does a lot of really detailed work um, and uh, it's, yeah, it's well worth the cost, but it's just a little bit above my budget these days. <laughs> um, after Mike, I went back to DeviantArt looking for a different style because I had uh, some very clear ideas about what I wanted to do with the Nameless Dwarf covers. And uh, uh, so I found a Russian artist, Anton Kokarev, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, who um, yeah, he, he really nailed the, the Nameless Dwarf covers. So They're beautiful, sort of, they really are. Yeah, so there's a kind of sinister edge to them. Um, mm-hmm. But with the new book, uh, which comes out in June, I wanted to take the Names Dwarf covers in a slightly different direction. Um, I wanted to lose the sinister feel uh, because that that part of the story is done with. Uh, the, the darkness is gone now. And so I wanted the character to um, yeah, have a makeover, uh, freshen up a bit and, uh, and not be quite so... Uh, cursed because he i mean he has a has a pretty rough ride in the first certainly the first five books the last i think key for self-published art, authors is uh marketing oh, have yeah. you stayed current and uh, with the trends that happen because i well i don't this is the problem uh it changes so much and i actually got sidelined for about five years by having an agent this is this is something I had never considered, and I don't know if anybody else has really had this problem, but um, before I had uh, an agent, all I had to think about was what I wanted to write and who I was writing for, and then I could keep current with what was working in marketing, um, and so back then it was it was pretty straightforward. Um, uh, when I first started, there was, uh, you would take out if you could get it, uh, an, an advert with e-reader news today and you'd get you know, several hundred sales in a day and you know, your ranking would stick on Amazon because uh, that was back in the days of tagging uh, books um, and also bought as well would, would work very well. If you sold three or 400 books in a day, if people were searching for other uh, writers, they would say, oh, they also bought this book by Derek Pryor. And so it would just be self-perpetuating. That all changed, obviously, with um, Kindle Unlimited, Mm -hmm. which, um, I mean, I I probably shouldn't go into it too much, but uh, my, with with, with the advent of the subscription model, my sales just nosedived uh, and marketing wasn't, the old style of marketing wasn't as effective. Uh, and then another thing that really impacted uh, sites like e-reader news today was Facebook. Um, it used to be with Facebook, if you had, say, 5,000 followers, that you could post something and 5,000 people would see your post. Uh, and then they tightened that up and you had to pay for exposure. And mm-hmm. so the, the e-reader news today used to use Facebook largely for um, for its marketing, and they've now switched to a, a, an email uh, 
approach the same as bookbub mm -hmm. um so that affected people like myself as well quite badly so you had this double whammy that amazon switched over to their subscription model which benefits amazon it doesn't necessarily benefit authors it can do if you know how to use the pay-per-click advertising to increase your pay page reads um but there was a lot of changes going on um yeah the other thing was ad pay-per-click advertising on amazon they, they actually i was one of the people that was was asked to many others were asked to test that out so there was a, a beta test uh, of pay-per-click advertising and as soon as they sent me the email i was like oh here we go this is the next squeeze coming and yeah lo and behold as soon as pay-per-click advertising was rolled out amazon reduced visibility for independent books massively mm. so that you now have to pay uh, them to get even a percentage of the old visibility back. So I, I, there was a lot for me to keep abreast of, and I didn't because I had an agent and um, the agent obviously wanted material that she could take to publishers. Um, and uh, we had a, an initial discussion about what that would be. And it, it, it looked like yeah, we weren't we weren't going to be pitching the nameless dwarf. Um, we 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 tried initially, but uh, the uh, feedback from the publishers uh, that we sent it to was very very positive, except they said that there had been a spate of uh, single race fantasy books um, about dwarves or orcs or elves that hadn't really performed very well so they were reluctant to risk going down the single race uh, road with uh, books about the name Storf. so they liked the stories and so suggested that we might resubmit something without dwarves in it oh okay uh, and that, so that was fine but that just meant that I had to rejig all my plans and I spent you know the next year writing uh a book with just humans in it and because uh, because the uh, market so the fantasy market seemed to be geared at that time very much towards grimdark and uh, you know everything was gritty and realistic and blood everywhere and <laughs> so i wrote i thought well okay i'll write something dark and this is yeah a lot of discussions with the agent and just to see what what we thought would sell mm -hmm. and so i i wrote something pretty dark and uh, so we we pitched that and uh, the feedback again was really nice feedback and very long detailed responses but too dark oh really uh, yeah and that was like really uh, <laughs> too dark for grimbart and then actually we, um something uh, it was another uh, learning curve for me but um one of the editors one of the publishers had said um really like this story but in these dark times in which we live he he was now looking for more uplifting stories um and said so, okay that would have been nice to have known before i wrote this really miserable <laughs> dark thing and so um that that book ended up being um well actually it was picked up by audible studios that book um but i published the print and ebooks myself uh -huh. Uh, and then uh, decided to write something uh, uplifting. But while I was doing this, while I was trying to work out with my agent what kind of things publishers were looking for, I didn't have my 
eye on the ball in terms of marketing. And so I pretty much let my indie business die um, for probably four or five years. So I, I left the books out there, they were still selling, but I was doing nothing to in, uh, increase sales. And I wasn't keeping abreast of what was going on with marketing. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it was what a couple of years ago, I split with my agent and I decided to stop worrying about what people wanted to buy <laughs> and just write what I wanted to write again, like I did in the old days. And it, which is the best decision I've made, by the way. It was wonderful doing that. <laughs> um, but then I say, like, how, how on earth do I navigate this uh, marketing world? It, it had changed so much. And so I, I network with, with other writers and uh, I tried to find out what they were doing. And some of them were still in the dark, even though they had kept current. It was, uh, you know, how, how do you get the Amazon pay-per-click adverts to work for you? Um, and you know, the, some writers were spending hundreds of dollars. It was getting you know, swallowed up within days and for no sales or one oh, or two man. sales. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the more and more I went into it, I started finding that some writers were spent, they had like a daily budget of $400 a day on Amazon pay-per-click adverts. And yeah, well, it, it looked for just through the people I was talking to, but some people were able to do, some people just, were able to work out how the the, the pay-per-click advertising benefited them but generally i was getting the sense that the return on, on an investment was decreasing for most people that i spoke to year by year and so they were putting more money into amazon advertising and maybe making less profit and so that was something i was reluctant to get into at first i have the last month or so I've been experimenting with it just to see if I can make mm -hmm. it work for me. And I, I guess in terms of impressions that my current crop of ads are getting, yeah, it's it's working reasonably well. But I I would say that return on investment isn't what I would want it to be. Okay. Um, so I still get by, I think, largely on the footprint that was created from my initial success mm -hmm. uh, and the initial fan base that um, I built up and I, I use a, I have a mailing list as well. It's not huge, but it's when I release a book, you know, all those people get to hear about it. I use BookBub as well. They will announce to anybody that follows me on BookBub when I have a new release. And so I'm still relying on that and that keeps me doing reasonably well. It would be nice to see if I could crack the advertising, but I'm, I'm fairly cynical about it. <laughs> I think, you know, if I, if I had, yeah, I could, if I could spend 30,000 or whatever it is a month on advertising, um, that I'm, I'm sure I would see a, a big uh, spike in sales, but I don't have that kind of budget. I, I, know, I know there's been all sorts of issues with um, the Amazon monopoly over, over the years that I've been publishing and, uh, it, it's got to the stage where it, it, how, how much can people like you and I do about it? Um, do we go along with it? And at the moment, it seems we don't have too much choice that you, you do have to play their game to some extent. Yeah. Having said that, most of my books are, are not exclusive to Amazon. Most of my books I um, syndicate through Smashwords. And so I, I'm on pretty much every platform now. 
Nice. Um, how big is networking in your success? Um, you mean social? Yeah. Media. Um, not necessarily social media, but like other authors helping each other out. Is the is the self publishing world? Do you think it's kind of small, or do you think that people don't like to help each other out? No, people do like like to help each other out. I I don't think I don't think that's been big for me. I mean, I I have networks with. Um, people in the past. I, I also, one of my books was um, published by a small press, Ragnarok, um, years ago. And so the, the authors in that group used to help each other out quite a bit. And also with the agency I was with, uh, we were supposed to kind of help promote each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, I, I no, I, I, I've not really seen any benefits from that. And I don't really do a lot of it these days. Um, I, there are a couple of authors I stay in touch with, uh, one of whom is um, traditionally and independently published, and so we, we share ideas and we sometimes uh, cross-promote, but I, I think it can work. I think it, if, it depends how much time you want to invest in networking, uh, cross-promoting, uh, marketing, advertising. For me at the moment, I, and, and maybe this is something I'm kind of blessed with because of the early success. I don't have to do a lot of that. Um, mm-hmm. we, we live out in the woods in North Carolina. We don't have very many overheads. Our house is paid for because of the name is Dwarf, basically. And, and so I, I don't, I'm not particularly after mountains of cash. Right. I just want to, you know, just need enough to get by on. And so I don't have to invest a lot of time in marketing and networking. Um, I just kind of flirt with it occasionally and see what, what will happen. Um, but I'm very lucky that I spend the majority of my time for, for, the, for my writing business just writing now. One last question. Yeah. What was the, do you remember like the first story that got you hooked on fantasy and science fiction? Yeah, I, I want to say it was The Hobbit, but I'm not sure it was. Um, I think, because I remember I read The Hobbit when I was about nine. Um, <laughs> and I was definitely kind of obsessed with that for a while because I started trying to write a novel when I was about 13. Oh, nice. Um, and, and I was determined that it wouldn't involve hobbits. And yet every draft I wrote, these characters were like three foot tall with hairy feet. And so I, I just gave up and I didn't actually finish my first novel till I was about 30. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I was very much um, in the early days influenced by, um, I remember reading a lot of the Robert E. Howard Conan books um, and also Edgar Rice Burroughs, the John Carter of Mars books. Those were probably some of my earliest experiences of uh, fantasy, whatever we call it, science fantasy in that case, pulp fiction. Um, yeah, but then, yeah, then it was The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And then I got majorly into the Elric books of Michael Walcott. Okay. Um, and then Stephen Donaldson's stuff. So those those actually were, I, I, I think you can probably find traces of all of those influences in my books. Yeah, definitely the, the Michael Walcott crops up uh, quite a lot, I, I'd say. Um, and then, uh, yeah, then in the uh, late 80s and the 90s, I was hugely into David Gemmell, a heroic fantasy writer, um, mm-hmm. uh, who actually lived pretty close to where I um, I used to live in England. Um, 
Uh, in fact, we used to frequent the same cafe, and uh, I only know that because the, the cafe owner used to go, oh, David Gemmell was just in here, you just missed him. Oh, <laughs> that's heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I, I, you know, uh, he, he, he was a big influence on some of my early books, definitely. Yeah, his, his books are fantastic. Yeah. Um, what about any current authors that influence you at all? No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I really don't read uh, much fantasy. In fact, I don't read fantasy at all if I can help it these days. Uh, occasionally, I go back and read some of the old stuff, but I've tried. Um, I have um, author friends who will say, you really misread so-and-so who's really popular right now. And I have tried and um, yeah, I don't know. Some, it may be me, it may be that I'm just too, you know, I, I, my brain has changed and I, I don't have the imagination I used to. The world building of some of these books is very detailed and complex and yet I don't believe a word of it. And I just, and I've really, really tried to, to make an effort with some of these, these uh, popular new books. I did quite like um, Joe Abercrombie's early stuff. Mm -hmm. um, John Jarrell put me onto him. And uh, yeah, he was good because he, he has like some of the feel of the heroic fantasy, but he's obviously subverting it and uh, right. being quite you know, mischievous. The, the later stuff, um, I, yeah, I, I, I thought maybe he was being very clever very, very, uh, and very subversive in a way, but I, I didn't get the same feel of this, those heroic fantasy elements, even if you're going to kind of invert those, I still wanted to feel that. And I'm not really seeing that as much from his new stuff. But what he does really well is point of view. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually, yeah, I think I, I picked up quite a lot of ideas from the way he has that very tight point of view. There's no kind of stepping back from it at all in most of his books, probably in all of his books. Um, and so I, I got locked into that with a few of my books, Husk in particular, which is uh, a book I read in, it's in first person. I think that's no, no, it's not. It's a single point of view character, but you're very much locked into that character's head for the entire book um, and, and what that character sees, hears, smells and whatever. Whereas I guess my preferred style and what, what I've gone back to is being pretty tight with point of view, but sometimes just pulling back a little bit, and mm -hmm. a bit of psychic distance. But yeah, so Abercrombie is phenomenal at that. And he's pretty funny as well, <laughs> funny writer. But he's probably the only of the, the new popular crowd that mm -hmm. I've got normally. I've, I've not read George R.R. R. Martin, I must admit. I read, I read, a, read the prologue to Game of Thrones. Um, so I, th I think I understood his style, but I didn't feel like uh, proceeding with that because um, I guess just the idea that, that, that uh, from what I'd heard about the stories, it was pretty dark, pretty, <laughs> pretty grim. Yeah. Um, and I, I kind of, I guess I, I prefer my fantasy to be a little bit more uplifting. Well, I appreciate your time today. Tell people how they can find you um social media yeah. links or your website well social media is a, a sore point I've, I've just I've, I've come off of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram because I, I just think I wasted too much time <laughs> so the, the, my website is dpprior.com and I'm on Goodreads I'm not sure where but I'm under Derek Pryor on Goodreads 
Um, but yeah, my website is probably the best way to, to, to contact me. Thank you for listening to the Troy Podcast. Please subscribe, like, and share with your friends.